Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Brazil. This is a show where we get to talk about sports, we get to talk about business, and we get to talk about everything in between. However you're listening, wherever you're listening, you know what to do. Five-star review, leave a review, like, and subscribe. Those are all the good ones. So if you're there, take the five seconds. It really helps me out, and I appreciate it. So thank you all for that. More importantly, today, reoccurring guest, we have Andy Fry. He uh, he came on a while ago. I want to say back in 2020, Andy. It's been a minute, but Andy Fry is a sports writer for Forbes. He's the host, producer of Andy Fry's Sports Podcast. He's adjunct faculty of communications at National Lewis University. Most importantly, out today, the author of 90 Days in the 90s. Go to 90daysinthe90s.com or Amazon to grab the book. Andy, how you doing, man? Good. How you doing? This is actually the, uh, the, the our last time that we we spoke into the podcast. I had bed head and I was like, no video. I didn't even know like you did video with pretty much everybody. So uh, now people get to know get to see me on a day that I got a haircut and you know, know that I'm, uh, I'm not made up. So well, you're looking good with the new haircut. The book is out. It's feeling fresh. I'm very excited to get to talk to you about everything, right? You're, you're, you, I've told you this and I'll say this again. Like you interview people for a living. That's like my absolute dream. This is my favorite thing I do. So yeah. hopefully one day, Andy, I'll be right there with you. But until then we'll get there. And as you know, everybody, on the For the Love of Sports podcast gets to answer this question first. Andy, why do you love sports so much? It's a complicated reason. Um, to me, it's just something that, um, you know, you, you grow up you're loving your teams, but then you realize that sports is so much more. So I think I've said it before, I'm fascinated with the sort of the social implications or just like the little things we notice about sports that we think don't matter, really matter. Like um, I grew up, Catholic on the East Coast as an altar boy. Despite that, I've never been like a fan of Notre Dame, but I've always been fascinated why Irish Catholics, whether you live in Idaho, you know, New Mexico, uh, New York, you're a fan of Notre Dame. But nobody goes to, as far as I know, nobody goes to USC because they're a Methodist. Like there's this strange cultural cultural links in different sports and they're asymmetric and they're just kind of random. And, you know, it depends on who you talk to in different places that uh, – Everybody's got like something to say about sports and everybody's got something that excites them. Whether or not it makes sense, whether or not, it, you know, I've met people from, I met a guy, uh, so I'm a Cubs fan. I've been here in Chicago for over 25 years. The, during the, I want to say it was, before, yeah, it was like the spring, I was in spring break 2016. I was in Punta Cana. I got to love, uh, do a lovely vacation with my family and friends. And I see this guy, I got up really early because I couldn't sleep. I think I didn't sleep through the night. I went to for like early breakfast, which is like, five in the morning and there's this guy with his family and he's got cub, cubs watch cubs hat cubs shirt like oh are you from chicago he's like no i'm from arizona i was like oh you live by mesa like where they play you know uh, spring training and or they do uh, uh grapefruit league baseball he's like no I, I live like up almost by you know nevada or someplace and told me he's a cubs fan because he grew up watching wgn and we talked about like the cubs and you know back then it was it was months early we was like oh they could go really go to the world series like this could really be it and geographically and maybe culturally, that guy had no reason to be a Cubs fan, but he was. And, you know, I was, I'm fascinated by stuff like that. So I can tell you stories all day, but it just never ceases to be boring, never ceases to fascinate me how sports affect us. And so that's my long answer on why I like sports. But I could go on for two hours. That's the, uh, the cliff notes of it. That's fine. I got two hours, man. If you got it, I'll, I'll talk to you all day, Andy. Um, I always think that's really interesting, too, right? Like, I remember growing up, we had WGN. So uh, I can't come from a Mets household. So mm-hmm. we watched the Mets. And when the Mets went to commercial break, we'd turn on the Yankees. And I was always confused. Mom, why are we watching the Yankees? We don't like the Yankees. She's like, yeah, 
we're rooting against the Yankees. Yeah. So then we'd wait. And then if, if both of those games were on um, commercial break, we'd go to WGN and watch, you know, whatever was happening in the Cubs game. And I never really, never really got that. Now the Mets and the Cubs, if I'm not mistaken, used to be in the same division back in the day, way before my time, maybe sometime in the 90s. I don't remember. Uh, no. um, but, but a long, long time ago, they were, you know, they were both. Well, I mean, the Mets first came on the scene, you know, in the 60s, they were an upstart team, but it only took them a couple of years to win uh, after Casey Stengel was there, once the Yankees get rid of him. I don't know what year it was, but they won the World Series, the first World Series in the 60s. And the Cubs are kind of good back then. It all went downhill for a while until the mid-80s. And, you know, that, we could go into detail on that. But I think we, you know, we probably share the same sort of sentiment about what to expect from our teams and sort of the ups and downs and the, also the other, you know, the team from the other side of town. That's always a, an interesting dynamic, too, the way it splits households and neighborhoods yeah. and stuff. So. I mean, you're in Chicago, so you have the White Sox. I'm in New York, so it's Mets and the Yankees. So yeah. it's always interesting and in where where that love of sports come from. And, and, you know, I really love your answer because it's it's the stories. It's a random makes no sense so this guy in arizona lives and dies by by this team that's based out of chicago that he may or may have never may or may have not ever seen play once yeah. real in his life and it's just so interesting how things like that happen um and it always just brings a smile on my face to hear interesting stories like that i think it's fun and thankfully luckily no not luckily we don't believe in luck here but gratefully your job is you literally interview people for Forbes, yeah. right? You, you, you interview people across, you know, you worked at ESPN, you worked for Rolling Stone. We went into it the whole time, so I'll link out yeah. to Andy's first episode that we did so we don't have to go through all of it. But I guess give us another cliff notes. Like, what have you been doing? Who have you been interviewing? How incredible is it still? Do you pinch yourself every day how much fun you get to have with your job? Yeah, well, let me, I have to, you know, to keep it real, I got to say it's it's one of my one of my jobs. It's I'm not a staffer for Forbes. I never was. I wasn't a staffer for ESPN. But, I, you know, kind of the, the cool part of it is so I'll touch, you know, I kind of touch on this in my book because my book is about the 90s and the music scene. I kind of consider, like, I think my, my favorite punk rock bands, and this is maybe a 50-year-old trying to grasp it still being young, but, like, I have had the best experience in terms of being able to write what I want. You know, there's been times I've had to pitch stories and the answer is no. But I don't work for a news desk. I'm not a staffer. Nobody says you're going to cover a rodeo this, you know, this season, whether you like it or not. It's more, you know, what stories do I find are, are interesting. And I've gotten to interview some really great people just by building relationships over the years. So it's being a freelance sports writer, whether it's for a local paper or for ESPN, if you get the chance to do that, is pretty entrepreneurial. And, um, you know, I've known people like me in the same role who are great at reaching out to editor and be like, hey, you don't know me. I got a great idea. I'd love to write for your your uh, publication, others that like have the home phone number of the publisher of Esquire. I got a story about that. And it's like, you know, they're actually like, you know, know the person and they're too afraid to pitch the story because they're like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I should. It's, I'm not really good at that. Like, so I always look at, it's an opportunity to do something that originally, you know, like 15 years ago was just something that when I was blogging kept me sane. Like when I was selling financial products insurance, you know, investments, um, plans, and, you know, liked some of it and hated some of it and was dealing with underwriters and a lot of like, you know, almost like Soviet bureaucratic type stuff. That's part of the financial world, unless you're a trader, I suppose. So it, the first, in the beginning, it was me blogging to be sane and to talk about sports with my friends. And then eventually I just kind of took my entrepreneurial skills, you know, basically my sales skills and got to write for, uh, got to, Got a, a contact at ESPN, pitched them a few times, and it took a while to kind of work things out. But, um, yeah, I've gotten to interview some really great people. So, like, for Forbes, again, just uh, based on relationships I have with PR people and publicity, 
um, you know, people in the publicity business who work the sports, you know, sort of circle. Uh, I got to speak to Lindsay Vaughn today. Got to interview her for the third time. Uh, she's doing so. She's always got a bunch of stuff going on, but she's uh, in a, in a series called. Um, I'm just I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, well, she's she's in a new a newish TV series that um, has to do with motivation, and uh, you know she's been involved in a number of different businesses. Like she does her own kind of fashion line for head mm-hmm. uh, with skis and so on. And she's so she's pretty amazing. And she's you know, got the entrepreneurial mindset, too. So it's cool to talk to somebody who's understands business, but, you know, is an athlete and talks about being an athlete. The Greatness Code. Sorry, that's the name of the the special that she's in called The Greatness Code. It's a series based about athletes kind of deeping deep down, reaching in and grabbing the motivation like when they're not you know, when they have an injury or where they're not performing their best. Mm-hmm. So she's, you know, she's super cool. She's kind of chill and just like a normal person. And they get to talk to her about skiing and winning gold medals, but also like her dogs and, you know, the greatness code, this new series that she's in. And, you know, her personal experiences is, is really cool. So, I mean, she's one. I got to talk to Shaq uh, twice. Again, his businesses, like he owns like 15 pizza locations for Papa John's. He owns some gyms. And so he talks like a business person. Uh, and then, like, some old-school people, like, my, I grew up in the 80s loving the Sixers. One of my heroes was Julius Irving. I got to interview him, like, three years ago when he was doing a, a – he was a coach for the Big Three League, Ice Cube's uh, three-on-three mm-hmm. league. So, you know, and then it's uh, – I got to interview a blind sprinter last year for uh, the Paralympics, a guy named David Brown, who, you know, like, you talk to him, and he, I think he's – he I think he was born partially blind and became, like, had a deteriorating – a visual situation and his eyes just kind of went bad. But so you talk to him, it looks like he's wearing a sleeping mask, but he's like all about it. He's like, he's got bravado. He's a little cocky. He's like, yeah, I'm the best at what I do. I'm going to kill it. You know, I'm going to go, I'm out there to win some more gold medals. You know, that's the way it is. He's not tepid by any means. You love to see that from all kinds of athletes. So it's, and there's some people that you've probably never heard of that I talked to that are just as interesting as, you know, talking with an NBA Hall of Famer, or I guess to talk to Tom Brady about six months ago, and he was down to earth and super cool. Whether you like him or not, or hate him, hate his football team, he was, you know, as straight as they come. So he's he's an example. But yeah, I mean, there's I've probably interviewed, you know, I don't know, uh, maybe a couple hundred athletes by now. You know, everything from the high school kid who scored the winning touchdown to someone who was, you know, was in the Hall of Fame starting, you know, a decade or two ago. It's just incredible. Again, you can kind of name dropping. Oh yeah, by the way, I do know who Tom Brady is. Yeah, I don't need to name drop, but you know, you're like, oh, who have you interviewed? Well, uh, well, I wanted to know, and again, I just I want the people out there to understand why I think what you do is so darn cool. Um, And yeah, obviously, as you said, it's not, you know, it's it's piece of your income. You do a bunch of different stuff, and you know that allows you to be a part of this and be able to do something like this and have fun with it. And I just think it's it's so it's so interesting and so well. With that, I guess the 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 opportunity, right? So we're, we're talking about sports. We're talking about writing about sports. Mm-hmm. Why, where does this idea for uh, kind of like a time travel book, if I'm not mistaken, back yeah. into the '90s to talk about the punk rock scene? Like, talk talk to me about like where does this idea for for 90 Days in the '90s even come from? Considering your background in sports and everything that you've been writing about over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I didn't start becoming a sports writer 
or a freelance sports writer until about 2009, 2010. So, I mean, before that, I was, was writing as a hobbyist. But I don't know. I mean, I, I guess being a writer, I, I, I liken it this way to people, especially when I'm teaching my classes to college students. It's like you learn to if, – if you're a writer, you do it – I can't speak for every profession, but I, li I liken writing to being a video gamer. Like there's nobody that I know of, and I don't think there's very many, many people who go, oh, you know, Dan TDM or Big Cheese, like they made – 10 million bucks last year. You know, what? I'm going to start playing video games. because That sounds like a good career. People who play video games do it because they love it because, you know, they can't get away from it. They have fun. For me, writing was always that way. I like to just maybe get my thoughts on paper and I was sort of fascinated with writers and, you know, like little things like I hate playing cards. I don't, I don't like playing Euchre. I went to college in Ohio. I don't like playing Euchre. Don't really like video games. Board games are okay. I don't know, for whatever, just writing was always a thing. So if you are a writer, whether you do it professional or not, I think it's an intuition thing. And you're always sort of thinking of like, I should write this down. This sounds good. I love these, these words together, the subject, or this needs to be said. So in the background, there's always a, an, an inkling to, to write a book. But that that's a whole other thing. So, you know, I was born in 72. I grew up in the 80s, in the Reagan era. Um, you know, I graduated from high school in 1990 when... You know, at least from our perspective, I could be full of it. I mean, my generation could be full of it. Like, things started to happen in 1990. Like, the Berlin Wall had just fallen, I think, the fall before the uh, Soviet Union. Communism was looking like it was dead. Uh, you know, and, and the, on the music side, we went from, on the radio, uh, like, New Kids on the Block and Debbie Gibson to Nirvana, Alice in Chains, L7. Uh, I remember, like, in 1990, the biggest hard rock band in the world, Living Color. Um, all black uh, guys from a uh, band of guys from New York who I think went to Fordham Prep together. And, you know, The Cure was kind of, you know, like big, but not big like they are now in 1989, as were the Pixies. And like some stuff was really happening. And, you know, I, I've always remembered that. And it's kind of a generational thing. We, you know, we all look back to the past in some part of our life and say, you know, it was really better back then when this was like that or when I got to, you know, we forget that when we were 22 and had no responsibility that we also ate ramen noodles every night and had no money and had to do our laundry and didn't have enough change to dry it and, you know, put it all over our apartment. It was wrinkled. Like, we forget about the bad and remember the good. So the idea from the book came up. Like, I've uh, my best friend is, is a guy named Doug Milam. He's a poet and short story writer. He used to live here. He moved up to the Pacific Northwest uh, probably about a decade ago. And we have all these, like, stupid inside jokes and one of them um, just was like in the 90s. I think one day I had a I had a dream that I was like, hey, I dreamed last night that we got on the L, which is like the you know the, the train um, system here in Chicago, and we went to Sri Lanka for the afternoon. And it, my friend Doug is kind of like a science guy, and he's like, oh, that's interesting. Did you know Arthur C. Clarke lives in Sri Lanka? I was like, well, no. How would I know that? Now you can ask Alexa. I was like, where does, you know, you could ask a question like, how old is Johnny? When was Johnny Cash born? And you'll get his birthday. Where you had to go to the library when I was in high school to find out anything like that. So we always had this running joke like, oh, what if we like, you know, took a time travel to like go back to see Nirvana's first show? Or like, what if we could hop on the L and do that? And it just kind of sat in my mind for a while. And um, actually, literally, I, I started writing the book five years ago today. So I got the... I'm not making that up, but I got the I got the idea over Easter in uh, what was five years ago, 2017. Was walking, just taking a long walk. We were uh, vacationing with our friends who live up in Michigan. They've got this great big house up in, in uh, Traverse City, 
And my son and um, you know our friend's son, they went like mini golfing with Dave because he's a golf nut. And my wife went out with um, uh, our other friend and they did girl stuff. And I was kind of like at home doing stuff on the computer because I had some work to do. Finally decided to go take a walk and I'm just listening to one of my 90s playlists that I make. And I've got like 60 of them on, play on uh, Spotify. And I was just kind of thinking about that. And then long story short, the way that it works for some writers is you have an idea – whether it's you wake up in the middle of the night or you're in a bar and you write in a bar napkin. And for some of us, if you, the test is if you care about that idea in like two, three weeks, like you wrote it down and you still, still think it's cool, then what do I do with this? I got to do something with it. So that was what it was. I literally was walking around Grand Traverse Bay on kind of a warm, cloudy day, like stopping with my Samsung phone and just like taking notes. Like, oh, I should, what if I could time travel with the 1990s? Like I used to joke with my friend, what would I do? Who would be the character? Where would I go? I don't know why I was motivated that day. I must, might have just had a lot of coffee and was really into my, my 90s playlist is probably what it was. So I uh, played with the idea for a couple of weeks. And then like June 1st, I thought, okay, I'm going to try to write this. I don't know. You know I guess if, you gotta write a, if you're writing a book, you got to come up with like 100,000 words or so. I don't know where that's going to come from. And yeah, just kind of the plot was, uh, you know, originally it was it was actually like something like me. It was like a, a white guy, you know, who was in his mid-40s or something, goes back to time travel. But I wasn't really sure how he got to the 90s. And eventually you tweak and tweak and you realize you, things got to make sense. And you're in love with the plot and the themes, but you got to make it work. So um, somewhere in 2020, I decided that uh, to change some things about the character. So the plot and the theme was still someone goes back to the 1990s to kind of fix their... They're kind of like do-over life. Like if we could kind of go back and fix things, that's what it was. But I had to kind of come up with a real time machine that worked and some real reasons to go back. And I also, so, you know, in the fall of 2020, I'd written maybe a couple drafts, had about 100,000 words. I really had to trim it down and had the realization that um, probably after, you know, no matter where you are politically, five years of Trump and Me Too and George Floyd that probably the last thing publishers wanted at that time and maybe going forward was a, a story about a middle-aged white guy who wants to go to the pa back to the past. So I kind of tweaked it and made my character female, but kind of like someone that I would hang out with, who I would totally get, who might own a record store and would like some of the same music as me. But, you know, it, um, it was really just more about sort of the, the type of character who generationally, generationally would appreciate the same things as me has been around the block, but wants to do, you know, some of those things that we all want to do, like tweak their life and they have regrets and they want to fix things, but by and large, they just want to travel and explore stuff. So yeah, 90s and 90s, um, which was just a, an idea that seemed kind of preposterous, time travel back to a better period. But then sort of the subplot is that Darby's back in the 90s and she's having a blast. And then that kind of becomes the problem. Like, you know, she's having too much of a good time to actually deal with her stuff. And then realizes that the golden age of the past uh, isn't, you know, it isn't perfect. That it's just like any other time. You know, all the, like I said, all the time, all the things that we forget about. You know, we can think about the Cubs in 2016, how awesome it was. But there's a couple times, like you know, the last game, we're down, you know, in extra innings or close. I guess we're, you know, we're we're in extra innings and we blew the lead and we weren't going to win the World Series in Cleveland. But then we pulled it out. Like we forget about all the. The rough times, we remember the glory, but I wanted to treat the whole trip as like, uh, you know, a serious thing. So, 
Yeah, so you're kind of paying homage to the things that you liked and then also remembering, hey, there was also some other stuff that was going on there that wasn't perfect. I mean, the 90s, while so I was born in 91. Yeah. Uh, so I don't I remember kind of the latter half and obviously I've heard about the 90s. Mm-hmm. I know the music. I've paid attention to it. There's also a lot of bad stuff. I think like heroin became a really bad thing in the 90s. Like so like I don't know how deep you get into this stuff. My book yeah. is in the mail, so I'm very excited to read it when it does uh, when it yeah. does get here, but it's just one of those things that obviously you could look back on any period of time, right? And and figure out all that kind of stuff. So, I'm curious like the 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 writing process for you. So, I'm sure many of the listeners know I also wrote a book. You can go in the show notes and grab it for free. You can go on Amazon. It's a dollar. You can buy buy a hard co- or a uh, soft cover from Amazon as well, Winning in Sports Business, and it was a lot of fun to write that. And it was nonfiction. It was interview-based. Like, I went through and I was like, oh, yeah, I did it. You know, however many, 250 interviews, 200 interviews yeah. up to that point. I was like, I'll do some more, but also just take from the really good ones. I'll be able to put the narrative together and help people get a job in sports. That's the ultimate goal of the book. What is it like, as you said, like, I mean, you, you change the story multiple times. You, you have to figure out, like, a real reason to time travel, like, quote-unquote, yeah. for people that are just listening. How... What is that like considering coming from, you know, writing about sports business, talking to athletes and something that's, that's relatively concrete to being as not abstract, but as as fictional as kind of uh, in your own brain as, as you know, you kind of have control of this. But you also know that you know, there's a little bit of guardrails. Like, what's that like kind of the dichotomy and the switching back and forth between those two types of writing styles? Well, you know, I mean, so your book was kind of like longer than 50 first dates about sports, right? So. <laughs> Uh, one thing I think you, I'll take that actually. Maybe you've noticed is that you get uh, the way, I mean, so I got, okay, cool. I've got to interview Lindsey Vaughn and and Tom Brady for eight minutes over, you know, just audio zoom. And I've got to sit down with some other athletes in person. And I think you realize that they're all like real, they're just like real people. If you treat them like real people, you try to BS them around and you get the inside scoop or whatever that, you know, people are going to brush you off. So I think, um, just kind of learned uh, from sports interviewing, just, you know, everybody across the board that you learn authenticity and how to kind of treat subjects real. And, but also like between that, so I take, I, I used to take improv classes. I performed at second city with a group, especially me and a bunch of millennials called the disappointments. And, um, yeah, we, uh, what you learned from that is, is dialogue and how to write, you know, basically when you're writing a scene, it can be about something is, you know, banal is like, hey, who stole my chapstick? Where's my chapstick? Or to like, tell me about this important thing that, you know, people dialogue in a way that is real. And there's a lot of ums and uhs and likes. And, you know, let me think about that. And so uh, I and I get a lot of that in my sports writing. I, you know, I talk to people and they talk like anybody. There are a couple of people like uh, I talked to Jay Williams, I don't know, maybe like two years ago and, you know, media person. Like, I don't think he said um once and he was I'd ask him one of my long convoluted questions and he'd be like, oh, it's really two questions. So which one do you want me to answer first? Like as if he's talking to uh, Peyton Manning about like, why did you only win two yeah. scrolls? You know, like, like you get a lot of little conf- confrontation like that. So I think just it's you, uh, it's a patchwork. And I think you know, sports writing, I, mine's mostly interview based too. I do some features, but it's, I don't do any play by play, although I've done that in the past. I've done game recaps. So all those, that's kind of a bag of different skills where you have to tell someone else's story. So if I'm writing about Lindsey Vaughn and her new, you know, venture capital firm or whatever, I'm taking what she said and I'm, you know, sort of um, filtering some of it and we're trying to piece in the pieces that maybe she didn't think to get the details about a company that she's um, with and 
what they're, I have to explain what they're about and really kind of patchwork the picture, telling someone else's story, not just verbatim and re relying only on that. So I think when you're writing a book, um, you know, I think my favorite, some of my favorite authors, I think I've mentioned this last time we talked, my favorite writers, I always like to read sports stories and non-sports publications like um, back before uh, Jared Kushner bought it and kind of ruined it. The New York Observer was great for sports because it would be just sort of these anecdotal stories about, you know, like major sports teams and stars. And then some, you know, they had a lot of quirky stuff like uh, the New York Observer was great to read. Their crime, their crime blotter would be just kind of hilarious. Like, oh, you know, there's uh, people reported that this man tried to rob 15 people with, you know, a, a plastic spork last Wednesday. And, you know, um, and then, you know, the International Herald Tribune and articles or uh, magazines like The Atlantic. And I always like just like to read non-sports publications that talk about sports. So I try to take that approach and like I'm a little removed from the subject. I'm writing about music in the 90s, trying to put myself there, but I'm not a musician and really try to tell the story or other people's stories. And I think that's learning how to do that organically is probably part of writing a book, you know. And then fiction is another piece of it that that goes together to admit, to kind of smooth out the process and end up with something that actually reads like a fiction book. Yeah, because I think that's the important part. Right? I don't read too much fiction. It's mostly nonfiction. Uh, and the fiction I do read comes from a, like Star Wars. So uh, it, has a, it has a pretty nice story already attached to it that I kind of know what's going on. I don't have to get too deep into it. But uh, it's just it's very interesting to kind of hear the way that your brain works because it sounds like you're, you're able to significantly pull from what you learned, right? Like my favorite movies are the ones that are just dialogue, right? Like yeah. not just dialogue, obviously, but any Quentin Tarantino movie, I will sit down and I'll watch a hundred times because I love it because the way he has people talking, yeah. it is as natural as me and my buddies sitting on the couch after we drank a couple beers, just saying stupid shit to each other. And like that, I don't know how he does it so well, but he does. And, you know, as you, as you said, you're able to, talk to so many different types of people and hear the way that everybody talks right from that you know buttoned up media personality of jay williams all the way down to you know the high school athlete that just scored the winning touchdown right i'm sure they don't talk the same and being able to utilize that and then take those and then not only put it into the lead character if i'm not mistaken darby it sounded like yeah. but all the other characters that are coming through I guess, how, do you, how did you remember how people talked in the 90s? Did you watch, like, a bunch of YouTube videos? Because, like, obviously things are going to change, like, Chicago in the 90s and Chicago today, like, or wherever the book takes place. Like, how did you kind of make sure that you were really gaining from, like, oh, no, this is this is how people used to talk in the 90s, not just, like, from the way you remember it, because, again, that's a little skewed, like, actually how they did. Well, I mean, I didn't overplay that. So, like, there's a lot of uh, – I remember when uh, – I remember this, when the cliché thrown under the bus became – kind of commonplace and now it's like overused but i want to say it was about the time that uh i just remember um it must have been like oh three or oh two because i remember it was senator larry craig who was um he was a he was a senator from i think from idaho who got like arrested in minneapolis airport for like something going on in the bathroom and i remember he made a statement nice. saying i remember him making a statement saying like i was thrown under the bus by the media and the media backed the bus over and i'd heard that maybe 10 times at that point and I just started hearing it. I'm not thinking like everybody's using that now. So I didn't really want to go back and be like, don't go there. Or like, uh, let's do the Macarena, you know, Macarena. Talk to the um, hand. <laughs> yeah, talk to the hand. That's actually a pretty good one. I didn't, I couldn't really remember that so much, but I also didn't want to be, you know, tied too much to that. Like if you're writing, a, 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 I suppose, a story about surfers, 
you don't necessarily have to have everyone say gnarly and what's up, dude, you know, hey, bro, you know, that could be it, but it also could sound played out and inauthentic too. So I kind of focus more on um, Darby. Yeah, Darby is, I guess, kind of, I kind of imagine her as like Scarlett Johansson with short hair in, in some of the roles that she's played, or maybe uh, when Kristen Stewart had short hair. And, you know, so she's a, she's probably like late 40s, maybe pushing 50. She owns this record store that she inherited from her favorite uncle who just died. So uh, backstory is like she had a career in Wall Street. It kind of fell apart about the same time that her uncle died. And like she lost her job. And so now she inherited this record store. She's got a place to live in Chicago. And it's kind of forced to come back to Chicago where she's kind of was from and, you know, kind of deal with some things and be like, why did I ever leave? And I screwed up that relationship. And then the wheels start turning and she's, you know, in this record store all day with, you know, two hipsters. One's a black metal head named uh, Conrad and he just, he lives to, uh, to rouse uh, Mark, who's the, you know, short, curly haired, ironic hipster with like, you know, like purposely mismatched shirt and tie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a character named Spacey, who's kind of like, I picture her like Billie Eilish a little bit, but kind of a smart ass. And she's just sort of cracking jokes and making fun of him, but she knows more about music than everybody in the store. So it gets the gears turning and, you know, eventually Darby hears about this, this uh, urban legend that she heard before. So to kind of get to your question, I do remember when we all got email, we all got our own email address. It was a big, oh big gosh. deal in 1997. Like, you know, I worked for a company that had like one email address for the company to, you know, Andy Fry at um, Euromonitor.com or whatever it was, because he worked for this company called Euromonitor. It was, Big deal. And then so about six weeks later, you start getting emails about a lot of trivia. Like I didn't know before then, before like say, say mid early 90, let's say late 96, early 97, when I got my email that. So if you walk around New York or Chicago and there's statues of people, you know, war heroes and the statue is up on its hind legs and the front legs are up, that that symbolizes that the person who's being honored in that statue died in battle. If the horse is standing with four legs, they died. They lived a natural life. Like, I never knew that. So we get these trivia emails, like, almost daily that were actually like, wow, this is cool. I didn't know that. And then it descends into, you know, people always joke about the uh, the Nigerian prince who wants to give you $80 million. Actually, in reality, it was, um, I think Laurent Kabila was the head. I used to study international uh, relations in college. So Laurent Kabila was the head of the Congo. He got overthrown. The story was that his son was in exile. And had, yeah, like $400 million. And, you know, I need to move it. You know, never mind that you might be laundering money. But, you know, dear friend, blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, I've reached you in a time of, you know, whatever it says, trying times of politically. And I've been deposed. I'm the rightful the rightful head of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And you know, if you give me your routing and, and account number, I'll, I'd, you know, for helping me move this money, I'll give you $20 million. And then, you know, stupid people who think that, the CD-ROM holder, you know, is a cup holder in your computer. Like we had pop open the CD-ROM player, you stick your cup there. I, I've seen people do that. So I joke about that kind of stuff. Like I bring yeah. back those things, not like 90s lingo, but like people actually thought that the cup holder, on, or sorry, the yeah, the uh, CD-ROM that you pop it out on your compact and it goes and you stick a CD, that was a cup holder. It was kind of a crappy cup holder, but that's what people thought it was. And the fact that you had email addresses and then you're getting you know, emails from, you know, the other one was, you know, all you got to do is send this email to 50 people, you know, it's a Microsoft usage test and, and Bill Gates will send you a check. My cousin just got a check for $80,000. 
Never mind that Microsoft has never paid a dividend on their stock, but you know, okay, whatever. My mom sent it to me and was like, oh yeah, I don't think this is, and always like, I don't know. I don't know if this is real, but what the heck? I'll pass it on. Let me know if you get paid. And you know, we've all done that. Um, and then you also didn't, like, you didn't get paid, did you? No. And I, I remember the first time an email, I got the same, the chain letter that we used to get chain letters in the mail, like <laughs> that someone from like, who knew somebody that I know in San Francisco and I could kind of sometimes trace like, oh, I think I knew it was my hippie friend from college, you know, like, yeah, I'll keep this chain letter going. It's been, you know, so anybody in the audience who doesn't know what a chain letter is, it's like you write a letter, you send it to 10 people, you ask them to send it to 10 or 20 other people. And there's people who are so bored, you know, they're akin to people who I guess do TikTok videos now, so bored that they would rewrite this letter and send it to 20 people just to kind of see... You know, and the letters gone around the world since the 1960s. And, you know, maybe there's 10 million people have received this letter. Let's keep it going. Like that was, I remember getting that same exact chain letter in digital form as an email. I'm like, oh, really? Come on. Like someone typed it. going. So that kind of stuff happened in the 90s. You went, you misspell a website, you go to the wrong website and, you know, it was, it would be a porn website and pop-ups mm -hmm. would pop up. So I kind of profiled that. Nobody had a cell phone that I knew of in... 1996. I mean, like maybe one person who was kind of douchey, who, you know, lived at home at a BMW and needed to be, needed to have a cell phone, like w was willing to pay the 150 bucks a month to have it. But yeah, it was, there was all kinds of different technological um, differences from now. And I wanted to categorize that as like part of the time. So I used that instead of the lingo or, you know, obviously mm -hmm. the music is the music and there's some, there's a couple of, uh, news stories like the Tupac got Tupac Shakur got shot in uh the fall of 96 it was right around the time that um actually I think a year later uh Princess Diana was killed in a car crash right about the same time so there's those things that we I allude to without trying to retell the story because they're public events that mm -hmm. you know you can look up on Wikipedia but they did affect us at the time and I try to you know reference them and within context of that you know it's like if you walk in a Barnes and Noble now and look at the the headlines on the news, you know, you'll see Ukraine war and hyper, you know, inflation and different things that, you know, you're kind of used to now, but, you know, if you could time travel 25 years now from now back to now, you'd be like, oh my God, you know, this is so amazing. I remember, I kind of remember that. Wow. It's on the front page of the paper, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's a little wow factor, I think with time travel and, or the concept of time travel. And I try to catch I that. And I think it's awesome how you're able to, as you said, you know, you're able to touch upon the things that are happening, but still it's going to be relevant to the story. It's still going to be relevant to the characters. They're still going to have the yeah. aha moment. They're still going to grow as characters, right, as you, as you read through the pages, which I think is really interesting. Now, going to the time travel aspect of it, is this, like, what kind of time travel is it? Is this Harry Potter time travel, well, which I totally think is BS? Is this, like, back to the future time travel? How, how did you get into the time the travel aspect of it? I had to kind of um, confine my story to a certain thing. So I didn't want to have to – I remember the first round of pitches that I did at the San Francisco Writing Conference, and I had some some agents who were like, I like this, but this is time travel light. and Or no, sorry, sorry it's, it's sci-fi light. It's not really sci-fi so I'm not going to do it. And I, was, I, I, and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. honestly, like this isn't a sci-fi novel, sort of the time travels incidental to the whole like culture. So if you want to say it's high fidelity or hot tub, uh, what is it? Hot, hot tub, tub time machine in the nineties, like basically uh, high fidelity with time travel. I didn't even think about that when I wrote this, but um, so I had to confine myself. So I did just did some research and I realized that, um, 
you know, just kind of searching online, like Wikipedia, nothing really fancy, that the Chicago Transit Authority has been around since 1947 in some, in some form or another. It kind of grew and branched out and stopped. And it's a lot, you know, it's somewhat limited compared to New York. New York's transit system is more expansive. There's more places you can go. It's faster. So, um, you know, I just kind of thought about, uh, originally I didn't really, I had, my thought was, there's this special train platform and Darby goes up there and a certain time of night when two trains pass by each other, you know, going opposite ways, that bam, she's back in the past. And I thought that doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? So um, I thought about what I just told you about with the urban legends that we got via email and kind of all the crazy stuff that we, I mean, I'm not putting you on. We really got all kinds of stuff via email as soon as everybody got it, got an email address. It's like we were looking to be entertained and, you know, there's emails about, copier use and you know, this meeting you have to go to and then there's the other 80 percent which is like yeah i'm i'm the king of sweden and i need to you know i'm i'm overthrowing the government you join me in my cause so i remember that that uh, urban myth urban legend piece of it so i decided to use it so uh the time travel comes up in that there is a, a line called the gray line which is kind of pictured behind me in this you know this it's a train i'll show it to you um you know that may or may not exist and there's some different, you know, aspects, different stories about, you know, if it exists or not and whether it was, you know, founded by the War Department and, or, you know, to fight uh, belligerence, past, present, future, like Nazi Germany and, Japan, you know, Imperial Japan back in the world, World War II, and then it was abandoned. Um, some other people say that it's, you know, rogue scientists conducting experiments and then they got caught or they, you know, got lost in time. But the, the story comes up. Um, so Darby's all nostalgic. She moved back to Chicago. She's kind of like getting back into being a local. She hasn't, in about a month or two, maybe like two, three months after she gets here, she finally meets up with a friend at a bar called Nisse Lounge, which is up, it's actually a real bar up by uh, Wrigley, Wrigley Field. It's kind of like an old man, you know, like drink specials bar. Uh, there's There are lots of fake Irish pubs around Wrigley Field, but it's not one of those. So she's having a drink with a friend and, you know, um, her friend's like, you know, kind of saying like, we had great times and well, let's hang out more. And, oh, I got to go on this trip. I'm packing for a trip. I, I would love to stay out with you for beers a little bit longer. So then Darby's friend Tam leaves. She goes to a bar next door, which is just kind of a stereotypical, like, old man, crappy-ass bar with the Cubs game on. You know, and she's, talk she's sitting there, it's just her and an old guy, and they're talking about the Cubs. And um, the Cubs fan, who's about 70 years old, just starts talking about the uh, – actually a game, a, a real game that existed in – 2016, when Jake Arietta threw a no-hitter against the Reds. I want to say it was, uh, maybe it was in May. Um, and, yeah, it was a no-no game. And he's talking about this game with Darby, and he's like, oh, I saw it three times. And she's like, oh, you have TiVo? And he's like, no, I, you know, actually, I've seen it in, live three times. And she's kind of thinking, like, what the hell is this guy? Is this guy hitting on me? Like, what's he, what the hell is he talking about? And then eventually he's like, you know, you've heard the legend about the gray line. Like I took it, you know, I only use it to, because I'm a baseball fan. I've gone back to see legendary games. He talks about going back to 98 to see Kerry uh, Woods' uh, legendary mm -hmm. performance as a rookie. And he went back to see the Don Cardwell no-hitter in 19, what was it, 1968. And the, the Milt Pappas uh, no-hitter that should have been a perfect game. And he's talking, so he's kind of getting it, getting her into it because he's talking about she's a, a baseball fan. And um, she's like, yeah, you know, like, She's thinking like, that's this sounds crazy, but these stories are great. This is kind of what I needed. And then later she, you know, through a couple of different routes, she gets curious and finds out that the gray line is real. 
and that there's a, a stop underneath her record store. So then, you know, she's nostalgic for the 90s, as, as we Gen Xers all are. You know, we all want to go back to see the first, uh, you know, the first Nirvana show, just like, you know, people my dad's age would want to go see Jimi Hendrix play at the Isle of Wight for his last show in 1971. And she kind of plots these reasons to go and maybe whether she should or not. And it's just like, well, screw it, I'll just go. And then that's where the story starts. So she actually leaves um, the same, she actually re-arrives the same day that she left in uh, Labor Day 1996. So I, I kind of set some limits where you're not like, how does this happen? Or this doesn't make sense. Or does she run into herself? It's like she leaves the same day, she re-arrives the same day that she left originally when she bailed, blew out of town. And so nobody knows that she's gone. And she tries to resume her life normally, uh, tries to go, you know, find that old flame that she's in love with that she screwed up. Uh, that doesn't go as well, but then other things happen. You know, she goes to a concert, um, and like I did once, you know, she's crowd surfing and lands on her head and blacks out. And then other things happen. And, you know, uh, it's both interesting and unexpected things happen, but also she fits right back in. But she's not dealing with her shit. Like, she's went back to kind of fix some things, but she's too busy partying and having a good time that she doesn't deal with it. And the reason it's called 90 Days in the 90s is that the the thing that allows you to to tran to travel is it, it basically looks like an iWatch or sorry iWatch an Apple Watch it's called a um, a time pass it's like a ninety day timer if you wear it while you're getting on the the gray line you know it, it's like a ninety day timer you have ninety days to either come back to the present or stay back in the past and wherever you are when the timer runs out that's where you're stuck and so she gets stuck. I'll just put that out there. And then she has to really deal with her stuff. And she really has to reconcile her life as she had meant to while enjoying lots of it and also not really enjoying certain parts of it that didn't really go her way. So, um, you know, there's an old saying, the grass is greener on the other side. I think that's all relative. You know, the grass is greener, but then sometimes the grass is wet and you just have to, you know, deal with both aspects of it versus the parts that you only want to deal with. So, but for people who love the 90s, love the music, Maybe a little bit of sports folklore, like the the Bulls dominated. Obviously, I get to talk about how great the Bulls were. You know, there's there's some sports in there, and there's a lot of pop culture about the '90s that you know. Hopefully, I feel like the approach I wanted, and I asked my beta readers this, my friends who I like paid fifty bucks to read it. I said, "I'm here's." I think I gave them two questions. One of which was, "Do you feel like you're tagging along with the main character or not? If not, I want to know that." But like, like seriously, do you feel like that you're you're on a trip with? the protagonist here because that's what I'm aiming for. And luckily, most of them said yes, and I think that kind of fueled the novel and made it way more fun to write, especially over five years that I spent writing it. It has to be fun, and that that's what made it fun for me. That is awesome, man. I love it. I think it's it's such a it's an interesting concept, right? You get to do a lot of different things. You get to play with this. As you said, you kind of have to put some guardrails on this yeah. to make sure at least it makes sense for the people that are reading it. And I, I think those are the kind of books that people like, right? Like they want to tag along. They want to feel like they're – either going somewhere new or going somewhere old from a different perspective, right? Yeah. Now you're seeing the 90s 30 years later, right? Or, you yeah. know, however many years later where it's, you have a lot of different perspectives on things and you're able to, as you said, you're still able to have some fun. But you're also able to realize like, oh, maybe maybe all of this didn't quite work out the, the, the way we were hoping. So you kind of answered it a little bit, but I want to make sure I ask it so we get the utmost clarity. Like, what is your goal for the readers of this book? Is it to have people just tag along and remember how much fun the 90s were? Or is there a deeper deeper lesson you're trying to get people to learn? Uh, well, you know, so when I grew up, I don't know if these were around when you were a kid, but we have to, we had these books called Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yes, 100%. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, so I, so they, they were actually perfect for like Star Wars people because it'd be like you're on a spaceship, you're the captain of this crew, you know, you encounter this hostile, you know, I guess enemy yeah. ship, you know, basically turn to page 17 if you want to wuss out, turn to page 92 if you're going to like, you know, they're firing at you now and you want to fire back. So I always enjoyed that. And I was, you know, I was kind of a scrawny little kid. I got picked on, but like when reading books, I was, you know, kind of more a risk taker. So of course I'm going to go after the Klingons or whatever, if they're attacking me. So there was that aspect of it. I just really wanted to, I can't make people like the music that I like. So I didn't want to write a, a book that's just about the Stone Roses and Oasis and, and you know, Husker Du. But I wanted to kind of make it relatable. And I think there's the, the 90s are broad enough that, um, you know, so my son is 15. He's going to be 16 in a couple of months here. And I, I, I could be wrong, but it seems like Gen Z has better taste in music than on average than millennials. Or at least that they, they Gen X never fell into that. I like, you know, I like dubstep now because everyone else does phase that some millennials, at least here in the Midwest, um, got into. You know, they're like the mashup 10-minute songs with 15 different songs. Um, it seems like Gen Z likes, you know, they like, they're curious about Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins. I went to Riot Fest with my kid last fall. And he actually, the night before, so Thursday night we went to see Guns N' Roses at Wrigley. About a week or two before, he's like, we, like, Smashing Pumpkins is at Riot Fest. We need to go. We go, like, I'll pay for half, he's not going to pay for half the tickets, but that's what his pitch was. So I was like, you know, I've never seen Smashing Pumpkins, and, you know, my wife has a book club, so what the hell, I'll just, yeah, screw it, I'll get the tickets. So we went, it was great, you know, and um, there's that piece of, like, I kind of want people to feel like, if I invite you to go see a concert, whether or not, you know, maybe you don't like uh, L7, but, you know, I have another extra ticket. You, I would hope you'd tag along and you might have a good time and I don't have to get you drunk to have a good time. Whether, you, whether you're going to buy the band's album or not, you'd probably be like, this is a good time, a, you know, a live show. I never got to see him before. Some cool stuff happened. That's kind of the approach in that I don't want to drill like, here's my version of music history. You have to accept it. Yeah, I'm going to talk all about the bands that I like. And I mean, there's a little bit of sports trash talk. I will say that um, Darby, the main character, um, there's a backstory, some family stuff that went on and her mom ran away with a biker guy from Queens. So she kind of hates the Mets and it has to do with like, you know, I think there was a Cubs Mets game on the day that that happened. And so she just always associated that with like bad stuff. So, but those are real things that happen in our life. Like um, I know a guy who, likes the Nationals because when he was in Little League in Ohio, his team was the Expos. Now, the Expos mm -hmm. later became the Nationals. But, you know, he's from Central Ohio. He's not really close to Cincinnati. He doesn't like the Reds as much. He doesn't like the Indians. He just picked the Nats as his team because they were the Expos and he played. He, he was on the Expos in Little League, you know, wherever he's from in Ohio. And we have these irrational reasons that we grab onto music and sports. And we remember things that no one else remembers. And... But it's all about having a good time while we're doing it. So I, I, that's what I aim for. Yeah, like you're saying, just I wanted people to tag along, not feel like they got to have the same favorite memories or bands or sports teams that I have. They can have never set foot in Chicago at all, but they're going to get a flavor for it. And if you try Chicago pizza and you think it's crap because you like East Coast pizza, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you're going to kind of feel what these people are feeling as they you know, make their way around Chicago in the 1990s and you know, enjoy enjoy life and also try to figure out life, you know, back That's in the goal, man. Yeah.
that's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to figure this thing out. We're only here for a little while, but yeah. we're always just trying to figure it out. So hopefully we have a good time when we're doing it. I think it's really interesting, right? So, you know, we started this about 45 minutes ago. And what was the first answer to the question you had? You love the weird stories and the weird reasons why people like the things they do. And I don't know if you set yourself up for that because that's a really long play on your part and I really appreciate it, but it's just interesting, right? We all, you know, growing up playing Little League, I knew a bunch of kids who – Oh, I'm on the Reds this year. The Reds are my favorite team. Next year, they're on the Marlins. The Marlins are my favorite team, right? The Rays, the Rays are my favorite team. It was always funny like that. Um, and then, yeah, as, as you said, you, the, the irrational, unnecessary hatred for the poor Mets who, you know, they're the Mets. But there's that reason why she hates the Mets so much. And there's that reason. There's a literal emotional connection to when she sees or hears about the Mets. I'm sure there's a visceral reaction within her because of something that happened in her, in her personal life. So it's always just interesting how you can tie those things together. And as you said, this is your world. So you're able to do those types of things and you're able to pull from different stories and different people that you've learned in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, like that's what we're going to get out of it. The audience, I'm going to read the book when I get it. I'm very excited. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Good. What did you get out of writing a book? Uh, some of it is, you know, the fact that, it, uh, well, I'm a writer. Am I enough of a writer to, to write a book to actually see it through? And some people write books because, let's say, if you are a consultant or you've got an expertise in something, you love crafting and quilting, like you should write a book about crafting and quilting and you know, maybe make a couple bucks selling. But it just kind of solidifies your repertoire. I, I never really look at it that way, but I think there's that piece of it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, now that it's done, I'm thinking like, you know, I want to, I'd like to be on some 90s music podcast. I'll see if anybody cares. And I may not be an expert on the 90s, but I'll be sort of in, I don't know, um, what's the word? Sort of uh, misrepresented as one or sort of, uh, I don't know. Um, but what I got out of it was just, I had an idea and it, it actually grew. And so it sounds like it's a long time. Like I spent five years writing this thing, but it really evolved. And I think... You go into it thinking, like, all you got to do is come up with a plot and some decent characters, and I've got to write, you know, 70 to 100,000 words. And then, you know, you pass it by an agent who's like, this got boring after the first 30 pages. Or I actually hired a, a developmental editor after kind of my first round of rejections and feedback from literary agents. And uh, so her name is Grace. She's um, strange. So she's like a millennial from the Bay Area, lives in Chicago. And she likes like hair metal and Britney Spears, which like all those things don't go together. And she's a Harry Potter's fan. Like she's got Harry Potter tattoo on her arm. So none of that goes together. Um, so I think, you know, I kind of got, a, she's gonna be pretty objective because she's all into different types of things. And she said, you know, one thing you need to do, I think is it's, you know, we'd love to time travel and come and go as we please, but it doesn't really work for a story. Like if there's no con constraints on a story, like you think of Die Hard, if Hans Gruber is not going to blow up the building, then why do you need to negotiate with him? Like you, something's happening. It comes to a head, you know, somebody gets killed, but that's kind of like in that in Die Hard, it's like the rising tension and then the resolution of kind of a subplot. So you learn that the other things have to happen and that I made it that, yeah, Darby's in this cool place in the nineties and music is cool again. And she's doing cool stuff again, you know, but did she just get back with her, you know, her girlfriend that kind of, she screwed up with, yes and no and then what else happens that might derail that and what work does she need to do or what things happen that sort of make the story more interesting and there's also a twist in there where um someone else comes back in time to kind of like facilitate what happens but yeah i um it's just uh, i don't know i mean i think writing is like i said it's like playing video games for me 
It's just you want to go to the next level. But once you get to the next level, you know, there's some things you don't expect and you want to, you want to play, you want to, you know, you want to be able to play there. You want to be able to hang and get to the next level. But experience what's going on and have fun with it, not just get to the next thing and get to the next thing and get finished, you know, win the prize and now you're done. So it's more experience. I don't know if that sounds like kind of obtuse or, you know, I don't want to say that. I just love the essence of writing. That's it, There's more to it than that. But I kind of wanted to hang out in the 90s and talk about shows I've been to and share things, um, little stories. And so there's that piece. And also, like, I do want people your age to realize that with, there's a time when nobody had a cell phone, nobody had an email. And I remember the time I was on the bus where these there's these goth girls over here and this punk girl over here and they all have black dyed hair and the one that has the cell phone is all of a sudden uncool because it's not punk to have a cell phone <laughs> like that was actually a thing now everybody has a cell phone no one would be like oh, no, i'm not gonna have a, a cell phone because i don't want to be a sellout there was a time where that was actually you know thought about and talked about mm-hmm. so that became a scene in the book so yeah it's like uh, i wanted to kind of share my two cents on life and have fun doing it but also had an idea I thought was good that I wanted to develop, and I think I did that. So hopefully other people enjoy it as much, you know, half as much as I did. Yeah, you, you got the opportunity to write it. And I think what, when you make the analogy to the video game, right, like you, you've been doing so much in writing for your for, for a very long time, right? It started out as a hobby, and yeah. you started to get paid to do it. Then it essentially became one of your main gigs, right? Like th- this is how you've made money, and now it's like, all right, well, what's – what's next, right? You like challenging yourself. You're an entrepreneurial guy. You like trying to go do things. You're trying to make stuff. You're not going to just sit back and say, oh, this this is fun. Let me just keep doing this. Obviously, you're going to try and write a book. I mean, I think now, now did we, did you think that this was going to be the, the book that you write? It seems like you've had this idea for a few years now, but it, it was, it just seems like it's kind of the natural path of things, right? And then pretty soon this book's going to turn into a movie and then you're going to get to write the screenplay, right? You get to do all that fun stuff. So yeah, I gotta, that's going to be fun too, right? Yeah, I mean, so I've had a couple people say, well, um, yeah, this sounds like it could be a movie. And, of course, that's a whole different thing there. Um, I remember when I was at San Francisco Writing Conference, I met another guy from Chicago who was, you know, writing, like me at the time, trying to write his book. Had a great idea and was trying to see it through. And I I asked him what his story was about. And he asked what mine was about. He said, oh, it's like that Woody Allen movie, which he what he meant was um, Midnight in Paris. I was like, yeah, it kind of is, but I never really thought about that. I hadn't seen that movie since 2010 and this is probably 2019 that I had this conversation with this guy in, in the spring. And uh, I was like, yeah, I guess there's, you know, there's a, and I hadn't seen hot tub time machine until I fit, like I finished it. And my friend's like, you need to see hot tub time machine. I'm like, okay, I will when I'm done. Cause you're always worried about like, well, I don't want to influence, you know, I don't want to like, you know, have anything like enter my mind and end up inadvertently using it. But I think time travel, like actually I'm not a physics Extrovert by any means, I don't actually think that time travel is possible in any. I don't. I don't I, you can't convince me that it's possible. Uh, I could go, you know, spend an hour talking about why, but it's such a theme that we've played with. You know, going back to, you know, um, you know, H.G. Wells and you know, early 20th century. There's it's taken all different forms, and a lot, probably like 70% of time travel stories are along the lines of the same. It's someone goes back to the past or the future to remedy something or invertently they're there and then they have a problem they have to fix but i wanted this to be a little bit more willful but also that you know like my my editor said like you have there has to be something she can't control um if she can just come and go as she pleases then it's, it's not really going to be suitable as a suitable as a book so then you know i was like well okay you know what's she going to be like her friend's going to say we got to go to this concert 
we got to, you know, I got, we, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to, and then she kind of just rolls with it and things happen, you know? So awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a pretty sweet movie. Yeah. I'd watch it. I'd have to well, first, uh, 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 figure out, need to find, uh, find out where John Cusack lives or find his agent and just oh, like, yeah. the book out. cause he's, he loves music. He's all about Chicago. I, you know, Chicago, yep. Supposedly he just pops in every once in a while and goes to bars here. And, you know, I've seen him in high I was like, oh, there's Rainbow Room. There's Rainbow Club or, um, yeah, but I mean, just, I'm just trying to get people, you know, who would enjoy the book to be aware of it at this point. We'll see what happens down the road. You know, I don't know what gets made to do a movie. They made less than zero into a movie and it was terrible. So I definitely <laughs> don't want that. All right. Yes. We don't want that. Obviously that's not the goal, but the goal is to go and buy Andy's book. 90 days in the 90s one more time 90 days in the 90s.com you can go to amazon if you just want an easier way of going about it anything else anything else you want to share with us anywhere where else maybe we can find some some fun trivia we, i was doing some trivia with you on linkedin i don't think i uh, i don't think i got the. i think my answer who was the first author first artist mentioned i think i went with eddie vetter i think i was wrong there but yeah i had a little eddie contest uh so i was uh in order to kind of pump pump it up a little bit um my mom made a bunch of uh, 90 Days in the 90s t-shirts, and so a big giant box showed up one day, like way more than I could ever wear. So I thought, well, hey, mom, is it cool if I have a like, contest and give some of these away? So uh, one of my kind of pump-up questions was, how many times um, do I use the F-bomb in the book? So I had all kinds of guesses on that in the winter. Um, I think it got to the point where I was like, the same number as a, you know, a pivotal, uh, this is what I said, um, a pivotal... Hall of Fame closer who won the Cy Young, same num same numbers as Jersey, and a friend of mine from Florida was like forty three, like Dennis Eckersley. Eckersley, he knew, um, so I, he got the T shirt. But then, yeah, like you're saying, the other one I, I asked, there's about two hundred fifty musical artists named in the book. A lot of them are '90s bands, but a lot of them is stuff like, you know, Darby really doesn't like post Genesis movie soundtrack. Phil Collins like hates it, like the Lion King. Uh -huh. So of course, there's some snide comments in there. Doesn't like Nickelback. Doesn't like. Uh, I think there's a, like a Dave Matthews band crack here and there, but not because they're a bad band. And so where am I going with this? That, yeah, so I asked, like, who's the first artist named in Nine Days in the 90s? And I had all, all kinds of guys. A lot of it was, like, the 90s grunge, of course. It was, like, Eddie Vedder or Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains or, oh, it's got to be Metallica. It's got to be, you know, a lot of more set. And actually it was uh, Macklemore is the first one mentioned because Darby has backstory, this box of CDs that her – her kind of D-bag ex, you know, fiance who had no taste in music has like these one-hit wonders. And I don't know, you, Mac, Michael Moore's probably fine to put on like at a party or your wedding to dance to, you know, what's that song? Um, thrift Store. Yeah, so like, uh, you know, Darby's bringing in her box of CDs that she's going to put in the $1 bin and um gets mentioned as you know the first artist that just happens to come up in conversation where she's like hey spacey you like macklemore don't you and she just like rolls her eyes like no i don't listen i don't listen to mainstream pop because there's that dynamic if you want to work in a record yeah. store there's always people who are too cool for this and i only listen to that and i don't listen to major la you know label artists and so yeah the music be uh you know the music conversations that we had about the 90s music also brought up conversations about current artists you know, I mentioned Lizzo and I mentioned Billie Eilish and because they're relevant in the conversation because they have influences, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Contest. Uh, contest was fun. I only came up with a couple of decent questions, but I might keep doing it. Who knows? 
Love it. Keep doing it. Those are always fun for uh, engagement on social media. Let the algorithm do what the algorithm does, Andy. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, maybe you can help me with some 90 sports questions. Oh, there we go. That'll be fun. Most of mine will be Mets-related and probably pretty depressing. But, hey, if you need help, man, I'm here to help you. I appreciate it. How much money is Bobby Bonilla getting still paid? That's Yeah, that's a good one, honestly. That's always always a good one. Always cuts deep. We're coming up. Bobby Bonilla Day is about a month away, I think, right? July 1st. So uh, good, good for him. I get a lot of text messages on that day, Andy. I'm sure I get a lot you do. of text messages on that day. But Andy, this has been awesome, man. I sincerely appreciate you coming on again, talk about you a little bit, but obviously, most importantly, get to talk about the book. Excited to read it again one more time. Andy Fry, sports writer for Forbes, host and producer of Andy Fry's Sports Podcast, adjunct faculty. We didn't even get to talk about that too much. I'm sorry, man. That's okay. Communications at National Lewis University and author of 90 Days in the 90s. Literally came out today. You're actually probably going to listen to this tomorrow. So it came out yesterday. June 1st, 90daysinthe90s.com, amazon.com. I'll put all that in the show notes. Andy, it has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. Let me talk about sports and music and, you know, Gen X 90 stuff because uh, that's what keeps us going these days. That and Ben Gay and a little bit of Advil. A little bit of Advil. Well, I think that other stuff's pretty legal too, so you might want to pay attention to that. But appreciate your time. Appreciate everyone's listening. Time's the only thing we don't get more of, so I appreciate